The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 8. Deuteronomy, chapter 8. Let's go ahead and pray, and we'll get into our study. Thank you, Lord, for your church, your body, the expression of your hands and your feet, Lord, here on earth, that we get to carry out your will, that you're the head and we're your body here on earth, Lord. And I pray, um, Lord, that there would be alignment. I pray that you would have free reign tonight, that your church, your bride, would be brought into that place of union and communion with our heavenly bridegroom. Jesus, cause our hearts to fall deeply and madly in love with you tonight. As we open your word, open our hearts to surgery, Lord. Remove all the cancer of compromise that creeps in in various ways to our lives, Lord, so that we end up looking more like you by the end of this evening. And we leave you changed forever by the power of your grace. We pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let me explain myself. The title of my message is Possessing the Promises. And here's what's going on. Uh, Have you ever been to a restaurant for the first time, maybe, and you enjoyed what you had so much that you just had to go back like the next day or two and just you had to bring someone else with you? Anybody or is it just me? We've all been there. And that's kind of what this sermon was like for me. Um, I had so much fun and so enjoyed sharing on this theme, this subject of the promises of God last week. And I felt like there was so much more that I wanted to say that I just didn't have time to get into. And so I decided, hey, I'm just going to you know, extend the series to a week two. So you can think of this as part two of this little mini series on the promises of God. And of course, last week I revealed that promise is our church's word for the year. And I taught from Luke chapter two about Simeon, this servant of God, and how the Lord had a personal promise for his life. And I asked you guys to go and seek the Lord and ask him if he might give you a promise. And I I hope you did that. And I'm wondering, did anybody receive a personal promise from the Lord? Anybody? Okay, I see some hands. Praise the Lord. The, the rest of you, keep praying. I got my promise this last week. I was so thrilled. My son got a promise from the Lord as well. And I do believe that as you seek in, as you lean in, as you listen intently, intelligently, like Simeon, that God will speak to your heart and he'll give you a personal promise. So that was last week. And today what I want to do is I want to talk about this life of promise that God has for each one of us. The life of promise is what Jesus describes to us there in John 10.10 as abundant, overflowing living. It's a rich, love-soaked, joy-saturated, peace-infused life, and it's there for the taking. It's what you were born for. It's what you're destined for. And yet, for many Christians, that life that I just described, I mean, who wouldn't want that? For many Christians, it seems like it always lies just beyond their grasp. 
And there's so many Christians that I know who their experience of the Christian life mirrors that of the Israelites when they wandered through the wilderness. For the Israelites, it was like the life that they wanted, it lied just beyond their grasp too. They could see it on the other side of the Jordan, but they couldn't ever quite reach it. It was like they were stuck for years, for decades, on the wrong side of their promise. And so today, we're going to see how the Lord leads them into the fulfillment of the promise that he'd given to them. And as we pick up our story, we find the Israelites camped along the banks of the Jordan River. And after years and years of wandering and waiting, they're finally poised on the precipice of entering in and taking possession of the land. But just before they cross over, Moses, the leader of the people, gathers the nation together so that he can share from his heart and he can remind them of certain things. And so let's begin reading there in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 7. It says, the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks and streams and deep springs gushing out into the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing, a land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. Man, that's a beautiful description. That sounds like a place any of us would want to visit. But in particular, I want you to imagine with me how those words might have fallen on the ears of the Israelites who had just spent the past 40 years wandering through a barren wasteland. Moses is wetting their appetites, and he's laying it on thick, and he does so intentionally. He's like a waiter who's trying to entice you to get that dessert, and, and so he's just using all kinds of adjectives to describe it. He uses words like brooks and streams, springs gushing out of valleys and hills. He talks about pomegranates and oil and bread and stones and natural resources that abound in this new promised land. And then he summarizes the whole place by saying, there you will lack nothing. Contrast that with their present experience where they had nothing. They were going from a place where they had nothing to a place where they lacked nothing. But there was a hidden danger lurking beneath the surface, and it was something that Moses was well aware of. You see, when you have everything you need, you're far less likely to cry out to the Lord. And Moses knew that once they got into the land that flowed with milk and honey, their hearts might be lifted up in pride and the people would be tempted to forget the Lord who had got them there. They might say, what do I need the Lord for? I already have everything I need. And so he goes on in verse 10 to say this, when you have eaten and you're satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not Forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands and his laws and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and you're satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you'll forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery." 
You can hear the emotion in his voice as he implores them, don't forget where you came from. Remembering is a prominent theme in the book of Deuteronomy. In fact, the word Deuteronomy, do you know what that means? It, it means second telling or repetition. And Moses, throughout this book, is repeating things and repeating stories that the people already knew. He gives three main speeches throughout the book of Deuteronomy. And in each one, he spends a considerable amount of time reminding the people of their history, where they'd come from, what God had done for them, the good hand of the Lord that rested upon them. And let me just suggest this. You and I need similar reminders. Why? Because we are so prone to forgetting. I don't know about you, but I feel like I possess an incredible capacity for storing all kinds of worthless information in my mind. Anyone else know what I'm talking about? Like, why is it that I could, at this very moment, recite all the lyrics to the intro to The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air? You know? Now, this is a story of about how, you know, the whole thing. And some of you are singing right along in your heads right now. Some of you are like, what is he talking about? But if you're of a particular age group, you know that one. And I know all the lyrics, but then I forget where I put my keys. <laughs> it's like I, I'm good at remembering things that I should let go of and forget, and I'm, I'm really good at forgetting things that I should probably remember. And that's not just true of trivial things. It's equally true of spiritual things. You see, I forget God's faithfulness. I, I have this tendency to forget his promises that he's spoken over my life. I forget that his mercies are new morning by morning. I forget that he's removed my sins as far as the east is from the west. I forget that he's always with me. And at the same time, I'm really good at holding on to my past failures and faults and shortcomings. I rehearse those things over and over and over again. You see what I mean? I hold on to the things that God says, you need to let go of that stuff if you're going to move forward in the future that I have for you. And, and I let go of the things that he says, no, I want you to hold on tightly to these things. I'm just like the Israelites. And my guess is, so are you. We have this proclivity for forgetting. When my life becomes easy, that's when I tend to really forget the Lord. And that's why I'm thankful for reminders just like this one in God's word. And so in verse 15, Moses reminds them how God led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors ancestors had never known to humble you and to test you so that in the end, it might go well with you. He says, I want you to remember the wilderness. <laughs> it was a place the people were well acquainted with. Moses described it for them here as a vast and dreadful place full of venomous snakes and scorpions, not exactly the kind of language you would find on the back of a travel brochure, you know, travel guides aren't pitching excursions to the wasteland. No, the wilderness they had called home from the, for the last 40 years was a rocky, barren place where almost nothing lived, nothing grew, and nothing dwelt. It was a place to go and die. 
And it was a place they were all too happy to leave behind. And the thing to note is, it was never intended to be their destination. Let me, let me show you something. Egypt was their past. And Canaan, that was their future. But the, the thing in between, that was the wilderness. And for us, the wilderness represents, I believe, all of those in-between places. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Perhaps you find yourself in an in-between season of life right now. You're in-between jobs, in-between relationships. Maybe you're in-between a rock and a hard place, and you don't like where you are. You're not where you want to be. It's hard, it's dry, and it's barren. And even if you're not in that particular place, I'm sure you visited it before. But even if you're not there now, there's another sense in which all of us as Christians resonate with this idea of being in between two places. Why? Because just like the Israelites, we've been delivered from a past. Hallelujah. We've been set free and saved from sin at the cross. And we're headed for glory. Heaven is our eternal home. That's where we're going. And so we know where we've come from and we know where we're going, but we find ourselves right now in between those two realities. It's like we don't fit in in the old life, but we haven't yet arrived in our new life, our heavenly home. And so we're in between. So we can all resonate with where Israel was at at this moment. You know how it is when you look up directions on your phone? It'll ask you to type in two pieces of information. It'll say, where do you want to go? And you type in that address. And it'll ask you, where are you starting from? And you've got to put that information in. Why? Because every journey has a starting point. And for some of us, that starting point that is going to break us into the promised life that has always eluded us is the wilderness. And some of you are there right now. It's like, yes, you're saved. That's not the issue here. The Israelites were saved, and maybe you're saved, but you still struggle with sadness. You're delivered, but you're also dry. You're forgiven, praise the Lord for that, amen? But you're not really walking in freedom yet either. You're blessed, but you struggle with baggage and you feel like you're barren. You're full of faith some days, but on other days, you're struggling with fear. You love and you lust. You're in a spiritual wilderness. You're between two realities. Not where you want to be, but not where you were either. If that's you to any degree, let me share something with you this evening. God wants to meet you in your wilderness. Somebody say amen. You see, over and over again in the Bible, we find God meeting with different individuals in the wilderness. The wilderness is where God wrestled with Jacob. It's where he ministered to Hagar. It's where he formed the nation of Israel. The wilderness was like a womb in which the Israelites were formed. It's where he delivered the Ten Commandments to them. It's where he inspired David to write many of the beautiful psalms that we celebrate in that book. And it's where Jesus overcame the temptations of the devil. You see, God will lead you into the wilderness in different seasons of your life, just like he led the Israelites. Notice in verse 15, he says, the Lord led you through the wilderness. And God will lead you there as well. Why? The answer is, 
It's the one place in this world where we tend to get downright desperate. And as it turns out, desperation is a key ingredient in God's recipe for spiritual maturity. When times are good, we drift, we float, we remove ourselves from the presence. But when we're oppressed, when we're scared, when we're lonely, and when we're desperate, that's when we cry out. It's in the hospital rooms that we're on our knees and on our faces before the Lord. I love the way the psalmist put it in Psalm 63, verse 1. Let's go ahead and read this together out loud. It's in your notes. He says, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. You see, in the wilderness, you become acutely aware of your own depravity, your own needs, your own thirst. And so you run to the presence of the Lord. There's a beautiful thing about desperation. It's not an emotional state that any of us seek out. And yet there are some beautiful things about being desperate. Because when you're desperate, that opens the door for God to move in your life. The thing that will keep that door closed is self-sufficiency. Moses alludes to it here as pride. When you say, I don't need you, God. I can handle this on my own. That closes the door off so that God can't get involved. But desperation forces you to cry out. And as it turns out, desperation is the one thing that God finds irresistible. You see, the children of Israel might have had it rough in the wilderness. But there were some blessings there, too. They might have had to face the scorching heat in the day. But that opened the door for God to provide them with a, a cloud to cover them and keep them cool. They might have faced freezing cold nights, but that opened the door and allowed God to provide a fire by night to keep them warm. The, the wilderness might have been a dry place with cracked ground and no water, but that allowed God to provide streams in the desert and water from a rock. They might not have had an abundance of food in the desert, but it opened the door for God to provide them with manna each and every morning. They would just open the flaps of their tent and they'd step outside and the ground would be covered with manna, heavenly bread. How amazing is that? Their own personal DoorDash delivery system, compliments of God. They got to hear the voice of God in the wilderness. They felt the presence of God in the wilderness. They experienced supernatural daily provision in the wilderness. They experienced God's protection in the wilderness. They saw God show up over and over and over again in the wilderness. And so have I, and so have you. There's some beautiful things about the wilderness. Some wonderful blessings and miracles that you'll only experience in those dry places, in those barren wastelands. It's like God becomes more real and he draws nearer to you in those seasons than at any other point in our lives. But make no mistake about it. God never intended for his people to remain in the wilderness. You see, let me draw you back to that phrase in verse 15 where it says, he led you through. Everybody say, through. You see, the wilderness is a place 
of preparation and not permanence. The plan from the very beginning was to lead them through it. Yes, it was part of God's divine design, his plan of preparation for their lives, but it was never supposed to be their final destination. And I think one of the problems or the trouble with so many of us is that we often end up stuck in the very places that God intended us to pass through. Did you know that that journey that in many ways began at Mount Horeb, just outside of Egypt, and that culminated uh, at Kadesh Barnea on the banks there of the Jordan as they were getting ready to cross over the distance between Egypt and the Promised Land. It was a journey of about 11 days. That's how long it should have taken them to get to their promise. But they took a detour, and it ended up costing them 40 years. 11 days stretched into 40 years. Why? Because of their failure to believe and obey the voice of God. They got right there to the brink, and they sent in the spies, and the spies came back. 10 of the 12 came back with a negative report. And that negative report, the, my, the, the majority report, it spread like a cancer throughout the camp, and the people's hearts melted in fear. And through their unbelief, they were forced to wander in the wilderness for an entire generation. Look at Psalm 107, verse 4. Let's read this verse together out loud. It says, they wandered in the wilderness in a desert region. They did not find a way to an inhabited city. And I draw your attention there to the word wandered. They wandered. Synonyms for the word wander include words like meander, or roam, or drift, or float. They were directionless purposeless and lost. You see, what they wanted was over there, but they were stuck over here. And I wonder if you've ever been there. You see, it's like we get saved sometimes, but then somewhere along the way, we stop progressing, we stop growing, we allow fear to take root, and we begin to wander. I've known Christians who have spent the entirety of their Christian experience wandering through a barren wasteland. They never get to experience the joy of their salvation. They never get to experience the miracle of God's peace covering their heart and their mind, guarding them, watching them. Their existence in the Christian faith is one of drudgery rather than delight. They never walk into the land of promise and abundance that Jesus promised. And what I want to remind us of tonight is this reality that God didn't bring you out of Egypt so that you could wander aimlessly through the rest of this life. He has a plan and a purpose for you. He didn't bring you out to bring you out. He brought you out of that life to bring you into a land flowing with milk and honey, into a land of victory and blessing. He wants you to leave behind your brokenness, your shame, your addictions, your past. He has a place for you, and you've got to take it, though. See, that's the thing. Look with me at chapter 9, verse 1. As Moses continues on, he says, here, Israel, you're about about to cross over. You're crossing the Jordan, and you're going in to dispossess nations greater and stronger than you with large cities that have walls up to the sky. The people are strong and tall. Anakites. You know about them. And you've heard it said, who can stand up against the Anakites? 
But be assured today that the Lord your God is the one who goes across ahead of you like a devouring fire. He will destroy them. He will subdue them before you. And you will drive them out and annihilate them quickly as the Lord has promised you. See, there's something to say here about possessing the promises. The Israelites had a promise from God. It dated all the way back to a word that God spoke to a man named Israel. I'm sorry, Abraham. But notice how they still had to go in and possess their promises. They had to physically take possession of the land. See, God didn't just hand it to them. It was something that they were going to have to be willing to fight for. Their enemies weren't just going to roll over and throw up the white flag. There were some battles that were going to have to be waged. There were some enemies that were going to have to be overcome. There was going to be some resistance. And by the way, that's always the way it works. The enemy doesn't just give up ground willingly. See, there are those people who think that the promises of God come to us, and they just magically come to pass. And you're thinking, why haven't I ever experienced the truth or the reality of this promise that I read in God's word? And it could be that God is waiting for you to possess that promise, to stand on it, to own it, and to fight the enemy there at that place. You see, the promises of God, they're not just like some magical pill that you pop that immediately makes things better in your life. No, no, no. The promises must be mixed with faith, and they're activated through obedience. Let me say that again. The promises are mixed with faith and activated through our our obedience. Let me play this out for you like this. Um, For the Israelites, God speaks to Joshua, and he's the one who actually goes in and possesses the land. And the Lord says to Joshua, wherever you set your foot, you will be on land that I have given you. So notice that, that phrase there, because there's two parts. Wherever you set your foot is a place I already have given to you. So there was the mixing of faith and obedience that fueled the possessing of the promise. He still had to go in and take the land by force. He had to put feet to his faith, as it were. It's interesting when you compare what Israel possessed of the promise with the description of what God said he was giving them. Because God said, I'm giving you this much. And you can read the description in God's word. But Israel only ever possessed this much. God said, I want you to have all of this. And Israel said, we'll settle for this. Even under David's reign and Solomon's reign, at the zenith of her power, Israel only ever possessed a fraction of what God ultimately intended for them. They stopped short. They settled for less. And again, that's something that we often do. And why is it? Why do we stop short? If God has promised us this, then why do we settle for this? And let me give you the answer. It's fear. Fear. In verse 2, Moses talks about the people that were opposing them. He says, they're bigger than you. They're stronger than you. They got walls that reach to the heavens. Oh, and by the way, the Anakites are there. And at this point, can I just say that Moses isn't necessarily the greatest you know, hype guy ever. If he's trying to inspire them to go in and take the land, 
Maybe the, he could have picked a better way to do that than saying, hey, these guys are bigger than you, they're stronger than you, and they're probably going to take you out. No, That's where he goes. And then he says, and there's Anakites there. And that name alone was enough to strike fear in the heart of every Israelite. It's kind of like that movie, The Lion King, when they would say the name Mufasa. And everybody would, ah, you know, the Anakites. The people had even developed a saying about the Anakites. Moses referred to it when he said, you've heard it said. So this was a popular saying of the day. Who can stand up against the Anakites? Who were the Anakites? Well, they were the descendants of the Nephilim. You can read about them in Genesis chapter 6. It's this freaky story that involves the sons of God and the daughters of men getting together. And the result of their union was this race called the Anakites. They were fearsome warriors who were thought to be invincible. And for 40 years, they had kept the Israelites on the other side of their promise because they were afraid. And there is always going to be an enemy that stands between you and your promise. And that enemy might feel like it's unbeatable. For them, it was the Anakites. For you, it might be alcohol. It might be anxiety. It might be addiction. It's that thing that has kept you walking in circles in this cul-de-sac of regret wandering in the wilderness for all these years. It's kept you from possessing the promise. You think to yourself, I want victory, but I can't beat this. I've struggled with it for so long. Who can stand up against the Anakites? I'd love to go for that job, but I don't have what it takes. I don't have the college degree. Who can stand up against the Anakites? I'm too old for that. No one will ever give me the chance. Anakites. And it's like we pre-program our heart and our mind with defeat so that we don't even engage the enemy in the battle because in our minds, we've already lost. We think that victory isn't possible, which is why I want to close with what the Lord through Moses inspires the people with here in verse three when he says, but today the Lord your God is the one who's going before you. He says, I assure you, God is going ahead of you like a devouring fire, and he will destroy them. Somebody say amen. He will subdue them before you. Amen. And you will drive them out and annihilate them quickly as the Lord has promised. They had a promise. And Moses reminds them of their promise here. The Lord was the one who would go before them like a devouring fire. And he's like saying, your enemies might be bigger and stronger than you. You might not be any match for them. But let me remind you that they are no match for the God that you worship and serve. Amen? <clears throat> you see, it turns out the Israelites were asking the wrong question. They were saying, who can stand up against the Anakites when what they should have been asking is, who can stand up against our God? I love the way the Apostle Paul puts it in that memorable chapter, Romans chapter 8. And he says it like this. Let's read this together out loud. Read it with a little bit of gusto. Read it like you believe it. Let's read it together. What shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, 
who can be against us? And that if there, it's not like a, well, if. It's more like a since. Since God is for us, it doesn't matter who's against us. You can't lose. Paul in that same chapter talks about how we are more than conquerors through Christ. God gave them a promise. Well, guess what? God has given you his promises as well. And that makes you invincible. He's promised to complete the good work that he began in you. He's promised his abiding presence. He promised to never leave you nor forsake you. He's promised you abundant life. And you say, yeah, but there's walls. Yeah, but there's opposition. They got walls. Yeah, well, guess what? We got a word, a word of promise from God. And every word of God must come to pass. They, they got giants. Yeah, well, we got Jesus. And even a giant as big as an anachite or addiction or alcohol or abuse or your past or shame or guilt, whatever it is that's holding you back, that giant must fall just like Goliath to Jesus. Everything must come under the authority of Jesus. He is over and above all things. And so I leave you with this thought. It's time to cross over. Enough wandering in the wilderness. You may have been in a wilderness for the last 10 years, the last 20 years. Your, your marriage might have felt like a wilderness. God says, I want to bring you into the land of blessing. I want to bring you into the land of promise. In your emotional state, you might feel barren, dry, a wasteland with a howling wind. God says, it's time to step into the joy of the Lord. That is your divine inheritance. It's what I've gifted to you. It's what I've given to you as a child of God. But you've got to fight for it. Each and every day, you've got to claim the promise. You've got to stand on the promises. You can't just, ah, it didn't work for me. That's not how it goes. It's not that it didn't work. It's that you didn't step in. You didn't engage the enemy. You didn't walk out in faith and in obedience the promises of God in your life. You've got to claim them. There's a promise for you. There's a promised life. For them, it was a geographical place. It was a physical land. For you, it is an internal reality where you conquer, where you are victorious, where you rise above, where you supernaturally are able to transcend whatever comes against you. Who doesn't want that? Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, <clears throat> for this time that we've been able to spend together in your word tonight. Oh, thank you for the promises of God that every one of them is yes and amen in Christ Jesus. We know that we face many enemies in this life. And oftentimes, we feel crippled. We feel weak. We feel anemic. We feel insufficient and incapable and unworthy. But thank you, Lord, though, that our victory isn't incumbent upon our strength or our ability or our righteousness. No, 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 Lord. We stand in the gifted victory. <clears throat> and because of the cross, we can claim your victory. Satan must bow. Sin must bow. Chains must break. Walls must fall. Divisions, strife, envy, bitterness, jealousy must 
go. Satan, you've held on for far too long. You've been squatting on land that isn't yours. It has been purchased and bought by the blood of Jesus. And some of you have been trapped in a history of failure. And I've came here to remind you that every time you go back and you revisit a part of your past, you dwell on your own shortcomings and your failures. You are revisiting a version of the past that no longer exists in the form you remember it because it's been covered by the blood of Jesus. You have been bought by the blood. You have been washed. You have been cleansed. You stand holy and righteous and new and justified and sanctified and glorified in the presence of Jesus. And it's time for you to step into that promise, to experience the life that God has for you, to walk in the joy of the Lord, to know the forgiveness of Jesus, to experience the blessings of his fellowship and the power of his resurrection and the peace of his Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for this gathering. Thank you for the work that you're doing right now. I believe men and women are being set free. And who the Son sets free is free indeed. We claim our promise. We step into it by faith. We walk it out in obedience, trusting you every step of the way. You are our victory. You are our champion. You are our king. And you are our friend. And you are here right now. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.